Our text this morning is Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. How many of you love Christmas? Isn't this great? Isn't it nicely decorated? Isn't it a beautiful decoration? I love it. Got my own little wreath. Acts 18. Our text has nothing to do with Christmas. But it does have to do with the Apostle Paul. He's blessed by a series of events that empower him to preach with boldness in the city of Corinth. The title of our message, Paul the Apostles, A Series of Fortunate Events. I wish you guys were here for service for that. No one understood it. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy. I just, I don't know, I just, that uh, always just jumps out at me. With his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. Let's pray. Father, as we follow the Apostle Paul and others through the book of Acts, it is our desire to see ourselves in the story in the sense that we want to have an application for our day and age, for our time and place. And I pray that you would do that this morning by the anointing and uh, message, really, of your Holy Spirit, that you would take these words, make them applicable to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I have many people in this city. Jesus was talking to the Apostle Paul about Corinth. Could he also have been talking to us about our cities and towns? Well, sure, because it's another way of Jesus telling us to go into the whole world making disciples. That great commission anticipates that there are disciples to be made. 
And all he's telling Paul is that there are disciples to be made in the city of Corinth. For most of us, we're not going anywhere. We're there. We're settled in our city with our families and our careers. And so how do those of us who are settled go about reaching the many people in our cities? Well, Paul settled in Corinth for about 18 months, not a long time by our standards, but it was for him. As we read about his extended stay, we can glean insights about Jesus' plan to reach the many people that are all around us during our extended stay. We can discover our place in his plan. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, step up and embrace your place in Jesus' plan to reach the many people in your city. And number two, step back and enjoy your place in Jesus' plan to reach the many people in your city. First of all, verses one through eight, step up and embrace your place. Now, the thing that struck me most in these opening verses was the diverse cast of characters that contributed to the success of Jesus' plan to reach Corinth with the gospel. Paul was central, of course, but he didn't reach Corinth single-handedly. He met Aquila and Priscilla. He reconnected with Silas and Timothy. He was involved with Justice and Crispus. Each of them are going to teach us something about our place in the plan to reach our cities. And so as we work through the story and see what happened to Paul and with Paul in Corinth, we're looking at these characters to see uh, different characteristics, really, of, uh, that, that apply to our own lives that can help us in our desire to reach people. And so in verse 1 again, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Paul journeyed 53 miles alone from Athens to Corinth. It was a great commercial center. That's because it was served by two seaports on opposite sides of a narrow four-mile-wide stretch of land. To save a treacherous and time-consuming journey, merchants would often put their ships on rollers and move them over land from one port to another. Corinth was also famed for its Temple of Aphrodite. It had 1,000 sacred priestesses who were really prostitutes who would go down and ply their trade and support the temple that way. And so this is the worst sailor town ever. Uh, You know, some of you Christian seamen and sailors, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, whether it's Patai or some of these ports that you really don't want to go to because all of your non-Christian friends are just going to get you know, blitzed and do all the things that that they shouldn't be doing and ruin their lives, and that was Corinth in those days. And so Aquila and Priscilla, now they had been expelled from Rome, we're told, along with all the Jews. They were Christians, but they were also Jews, and so don't forget that the Jews were persecuted by the Romans. Our focus, of course, on the church, on the growth of Christianity, but Jews were seriously persecuted by the Romans. Uh, They were subjected uh, by the Romans, and so they left Rome and they reestablished a tent-making business in Corinth. They had a tent-making business in Rome, and they reestablished it down in Corinth. Quill and Priscilla, already believers in Jesus Christ by the time Paul met them. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament. 
They will open up their hearts to Apollos and teach him about the Holy Spirit a little bit later in Acts 18. And they will open up their home in Corinth and have a church meeting in it. You read that in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul had to work to support himself. Every Jewish boy was taught a trade. His was tent making, which involved leather working. There was a certain uh, goat skin uh, that was made, well, not a certain goat skin, but goat skin was made into a certain material called silicium uh, outside the area where Paul uh, lived in uh, Cilicia, and it's believed that he worked with this material, uh, leather working tent. So this would be the first Corinthian leather, actually, is what I'm building up to. But... Uh, so anyway, he had this trade, and it's true, he, it, was a, it was a leather-working kind of a craft. Uh, Paul saw the help-wanted ad at A&P Tent Making, and he applied for a job. And really, you know, that's, I mean, you know, he would, uh, he would have gotten to Corinth, needing to support himself. He would have looked for the tent maker, uh, and it was Aquila and Priscilla, the original A&P. Uh, and, and imagine that. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but imagine, uh, just for a minute, if you want to have fun, think about Paul going in, you know, take, you know how you take the sign out of the window, you know, wanted leather worker to make rich Corinthian leather. And, uh, you know, he goes in, and, you know, how did they know each other were Christians? Do you, do you ever have encounters like that with people where you find out somebody's a Christian, get all excited about it? You know, maybe you notice that they have a, a Christian symbol somewhere, and you're kind of hesitant, kind of tentative. You know, are they really Christians? Are they cultists? You know, what, you know what, what am I getting myself into by asking them if they're Christians and all that? But somehow they, they found out that they were Christians. What a joy this must have been. I mean, Aquila and Priscilla, recently displaced, starting a business, needing somebody, I'm sure, to help them uh, work with leather. Paul coming down to Corinth, needing to support himself. This was a beautiful moment of God's providence. And, and on top of just the job and all the encouragement that they would be to one another, Paul had a real longing to visit Rome and to know about the church at Rome. Uh, and can you imagine meeting up with Paul the Apostle? And, and just picking his brain and being able to share with him. And so this was a, a wonderful time of fellowship. Now, having secured employment, Paul settled into his regular weekly ministry of preaching Jesus in the local synagogue. In verse 4, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, I said we were going to look for characteristics, and so let's do that with Aquila and Priscilla. Let me highlight a few observations that we can make just about their lives. First of all, we see that they had a solid home life. Their marriage was one of companionship and cooperation. Every time you see them in the Scripture, they are together in the Lord, ministering for the Lord. They were ready to minister to Paul and could help reach Corinth because theirs was a spiritual home. And so the first thing we would say if we want to reach a city for Jesus Christ uh, on an individual level is to be spiritual at home, to pay attention to uh, the church really at home. Secondly, their approach to business and to earning a living was spiritual. Out in the everyday workforce, they manifested their Christianity. In their case, they hired a Christian. And, and I don't think it's going too far to say that they did excellent work and they gave God the glory uh, in and through their business. And third, they kept their material affairs in proper perspective. They were in a position to help support Paul by offering him work, and when the need arose, they opened up their home for the church to use. 
If you want to be a part of reaching your city, start at home. Make yours a Christian home, then bring Jesus Christ to work with you, then realize you only work to be able to share your resources with other believers when the needs arise and to further the kingdom of God. Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth, beginning in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, these guys, along with Luke, had been traveling with Paul on this second missions trip. They had stayed behind, but now rejoined Paul. Compelled by the Spirit can be translated several different ways. The gist of it is that Paul dedicated himself completely to the ministry. He no longer worked uh, as a tent maker or a leather worker. He could do so because we learn in 2 Corinthians that Silas and Timothy brought Paul a financial gift from the church in Philippi. Paul quit his tent-making job and was able to devote full time to the study and preaching and teaching of the Word of God. From Silas and Timothy, we also learn some things, notably these two. First of all, it's a good thing for the church to be able to financially support those who are compelled by the Spirit to devote full time to the Word of God. I mean, if you've got Paul the Apostle, you'd rather have him studying and teaching the Word of God than making tents for you. And, and because of the financial support of the church at Philippi, he was able to do that. And then second, you see that God wants to raise up men who come alongside of and spiritually support those who are compelled to devote full time to the Word of God. Silas and Timothy decided that they wanted to hang around with Paul, be with Paul, travel with Paul, and help him in any way they could to pick up the slack so that he could teach the Word of God uh, as easily and as straightforwardly as possible. And so if we want to be a part of reaching our cities... All of us can financially support the ministry, and in every church, there are going to be some who God wants to raise up who will come alongside of and offer strong, loyal spiritual support so that the teaching of God's Word can go forth. Then in verse 6, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, those in the synagogue that is, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. At the point they blasphemed either God or Paul, he turned away from them. In a symbolic gesture that the Jews would be familiar with, he shook out his garments, signifying that he had fulfilled his responsibility to reach them for God, but they had rejected the blood of Jesus Christ. And so no longer welcome in the synagogue, Paul went outside to the Gentiles. And I just want to mention, just in passing, that this is not an angry gesture. This is not a gesture of frustration. God is leading Paul, telling him it's time to leave the synagogue. All that is behind you. They're not going to receive me. And I say that because elsewhere, Paul talks of his strong desire to see Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. It was his heart's desire that his own people, the Jews, see Jesus as their Messiah. He wishes in one place that he could be condemned if all the Jews could be saved. He would take their place in condemnation. And so uh, no anger, no frustration, at least no visible frustration. This is just Paul officially declaring to that synagogue at that time, God is turning away from you. He is no longer offering you this message of salvation. 
It's going out to the unbelieving Gentiles, not even Gentiles that are in the synagogue, just to the general Gentile population. And so in verse 7, he departed from there and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house happened to be next door to the synagogue. And so they started Calvary Chapel of Corinth right there in a house next door to the synagogue. Scholars believe Justice is a.k.a. Gaius Titius Justice, who is mentioned by those various names in different places in Scripture. From him, too, we're learning something about reaching our cities. When there was a need, he had the resources to meet the need. He stepped up and did so. And so if you're Paul the Apostle, you're shaking off your clothes, can't meet in the synagogue anymore, where are we going to meet? And God providentially has provided a Christian by the name of Justice who happens to have a nice big house right next door to the synagogue, be the perfect place to have your meeting. Uh, and, and he somehow knows about the need, hears about the need, anticipates the need, whichever it was, comes to Paul and says, hey, you, we can't meet in the synagogue anymore. Let's meet in my house. And what a blessing it is in the church of Jesus Christ to be able to anticipate needs and meet them to, or to express needs and see them met. In fact, sometimes we're hesitant to bring up some needs uh, you know, or to, because we get so many volunteers and we don't want to be a burden to anybody. Uh, and it's, it's a great, it's just the natural outflow of what it means to be a Christian. A lot of these things we're talking about, very simple, have a Christian home, dedicate your business to Christ, come to church and be willing to offer yourself uh, and your resources to Christ. Uh, this is how the Lord reaches cities. And then in verse 8, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. How exciting is this? Paul gets kicked out of the synagogue, and then the ruler of the synagogue becomes a Christian. It's, you know, we don't want to make a big deal about celebrities or famous people who become Christians. We want to see if they can really walk with the Lord before we put them in the limelight and, and, and all of that. But it, it's exciting. I mean, if you hear, if you're having a Bible study and, and hey, the, the ruler of the synagogue, who's that guy? That's Crispus. He's the ruler of the synagogue. That's pretty exciting. At the same time, however, Crispus probably had to resign once he got saved. In a few verses, we're going to read about Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Well, wait a minute. What happened to Crispus? He got saved and probably either was asked to or had to resign uh, his position. From him, we learn that there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. It can cost us position or status or standing. But what does it matter when I am seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about reaching a city or a community for Jesus, we might initially think about getting all the churches on board for an evangelistic crusade in a football stadium. Jesus leads that way sometimes, and there's nothing wrong with a crusade. This summer, uh, the Harvest Organization, Greg Laurie, they had a crusade at Cal State Stanislaus in the amphitheater up there. 50,000 people attended over a three-day period of time, and about three or 4,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And so God does that. If you go to their website, you can see an eight- or ten-minute uh, compilation video of what happened during that crusade. Uh, we showed it a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night. And, and so God leads in that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you see in Corinth 
is what God does most of the time and he's doing it all of the time. And I like it because it's much more personal. The thing about a crusade or a program or a a big activity is it's not always personal. And by what I mean by that, it doesn't always involve me changing my life and really living for God. Jesus would reach the many people in Corinth by building up His church from the ground level. In the church, there would be believers who stepped up to find their place in His plan. They would do it by establishing spiritual homes, then dedicating their businesses and their careers to help further the gospel, then financially and spiritually coming alongside the teaching of the Word of God in their local church. When they heard of a need and they had the wherewithal to meet it, they did so, and ultimately they were willing to sacrifice and even suffer if necessary for their testimony. You can't stop a group of people like that. When everybody's on board, then Jesus is adding to the church daily those that should be saved. And that's really the overall plan for reaching our cities. It's for every one of us to step up and embrace our place in the church. It is for me to personally account for myself to the Lord, offering myself a living sacrifice at home, at work, in the church, and allowing Him to use me as He sees fit. In verses 9 through 17, we want to step back and enjoy our place in Jesus' plan. For all the encouragement Paul received, we find in verse 9 that he was fearful and repressed. Now, we might excuse that because, after all, he'd been run out of Thessalonica after a very short time, and they followed him and ran him out of Berea. His ministry in Athens was not all that outwardly successful. Who could tell what bonds or beatings or bereavement awaited him in the city of Corinth? Well, Jesus could tell, and so in verse 9, he said, don't be afraid, but speak and don't keep silent. Now, Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't tell someone, do not be afraid unless they are fearful. He doesn't tell them to speak and not keep silent unless they are holding back. Now, the thing that strikes you about verse 9 is that it seems out of place. You would expect this to be verse 1 or 2 because everything cool had just happened to Paul. I mean, this was one of the coolest places that he'd been to. He gets to Corinth, okay, he travels alone, and it's kind of weird, but then he immediately meets Aquila and Priscilla, gets a job with Christians. Silas and Timothy come, and not only does he have their fellowship and encouragement in the ministry, two guys to usher for him while he's teaching and all, but, but he, they bring him a financial offering from the church at Philippi, and then, uh, you know, he, sure, he leaves the synagogue, but immediately there's a building opened up for him from justice, and then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, gets saved. I mean, things couldn't be going any better for the Apostle Paul, and that's when Jesus comes to him and says, don't be afraid, don't keep silent. And so I had to think about that for a minute, and then I realized that discouragement can set in at any time. Just because things seem to be going okay or are even going great, it doesn't counter spiritual discouragement. And many of us, many of you have experienced spiritual discouragement. Maybe you're discouraged right now in some of the areas that we've talked about, in your home, in your place of work or your business, in the church, in your service to the Lord. Maybe even outwardly things seem to be going great for you. 
but there's a, a distress or a discouragement. It's, the, it's first of all, normal, uh, and it's a supernatural uh, attack against your life and against your ministry. Discouragement is a terrible foe in the ministry. And so what is going to counter spiritual discouragement? Well, in Paul's case, he got a fresh vision of the Lord and a fresh vision from the Lord. Paul received several visions of the risen Lord in his lifetime. We may never see him in the same way that Paul saw him, but we can still see him. The Lord will come to you in His Word to lift you up from your distress and discouragement when you are down if you will seek Him there. And what happens quite often if we're honest with each other or with ourselves is that we are not paying attention to our personal devotional life with the Lord. And as that suffers, the attack of discouragement finds a more ready target because we're not, it's, life isn't really about me just enjoying Jesus anymore. It's about all the other things going a certain way. And if they don't all fall into place, then I'm discouraged. If I'm just in love with Jesus, how could I ever be discouraged? Really, think about it. How could you ever be discouraged in a personal one-on-one love relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, who lives for you, who has a secret name for you that he's going to give you in heaven, who's building your house in heaven right now, who said he'd never leave you or forsake you, who's walking with you through every suffering and trial. Do I have to go on? I don't have to go on. And so discouragement comes because we fail in that area of our life. And then we also need a fresh vision from the Lord. Paul got his in verse 10 where the Lord said, I am with you, no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, I don't know if Paul put that into a little vision statement that he had on his cards, you know. Our vision for, you know, 53 AD is uh, no attack, you know, so go out and preach. I don't know. I'm trying to make up something, but you see how difficult these things are. Okay, and so this is, a, this is kind of, a, I mean, so Paul is emboldened by this vision. God gives him a vision, Jesus, of, not just of Jesus, but a vision for his ministry, and he says, no one's going to attack you. Now, that, that might not mean anything to you and I, but that's, a pretty, that's pretty exciting if you're Paul the apostle. Paul, as long as you're in Corinth, no one's going to beat you up. Thank you, Jesus, you know. And I have many people in this city. Now, that we've seen is just kind of a general, you know, the Lord says, go out into the world, there's many people. But for that point of time, he's saying, I really do have many people in Corinth who are going to come to the saving knowledge uh, of of salvation and, and come into the church. And so this is his vision. Jesus isn't saying this to us specifically, but he does always want to say something to us. We need fresh vision from the Lord in our ministering and in our serving. It's too easy to get comfortable, to get in a rut, to go on some kind of a spiritual autopilot in the things that we do. The things we've always done may not be infused with the Holy Spirit anymore. We need to let the Lord analyze us, challenge us, sometimes reinvent us. Now, that doesn't mean we leave the basics. 
Far too often, a church or a Christian will think, man, I'm just, I seem a little dry or this seems a little dead or, you know, nothing's really happening. And they will jettison some of the basic things that you need to have, like the teaching of the Word of God or, or worshiping the Lord or, or something that's bedrock. And you hear this sometimes out in the world. It's, it's, every generation struggles with this where people say, you know, you know, nobody wants to hear the Bible taught anymore. You need to do this or do that. You need to show tons of, uh, you know, clips from the Chronicles of Narnia all the time. And, and, you know, and there's nothing wrong with some of that as long as you're not jettisoning the Bible. And, and so, anyway, you, we want to be careful, but at the same time, you can't just get stuck in a rut. You have to always be moving forward in ministry, trying new things, doing new things, being in a place where you're a little bit uncomfortable so that the Holy Spirit can lead for you, so that Jesus can prove himself to you. And so, not a dis- I'm not talking about discouragement, but just a little bit of stirring up in your heart. Just, hey, is this the way we want to do that? Is, is this what, and sometimes, yeah, that's what we want to do because it's great, it's wonderful. Within that, is there something we can do a little bit differently to make it better? And so there's always a way of stirring yourself up. You know, maybe there's something that, as a church, we're going to do all the time, the, the Triple H, let's say, Harvest Hallelujah Happening, which was fantastic this year. I mean, the best ever, for real. And, and so you say, okay, yeah, we're going to do that. I mean, it, it's, it's a tradition, but it's a good tradition. It's, there's nothing wrong with Christians getting together, coming together, and having a good time. So let's look within that. What can we do a little bit differently, or what can we do better that we're already doing to make it more fun, to make it more, uh, you, you know, compelling, to make it just more of what it ought to be, more excellent. There's a scripture that's really been on my heart lately. It's in 1 Corinthians 14. I think it's verse 12. It's, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the body of Christ. And so it has to do with our spiritual gifts. But Paul is saying, when you and I excel... Not just get by, not just show up, not just do what we've always done, but when we excel, then the body of Christ is built up and edified. And so Paul gets this fresh vision from the Lord, and he goes out and he reaches this city with renewed vision. It says in verse 11, he continued there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. A, provident, a series of providential events gave Paul an 18-month period of relative calm. When all the things we've mentioned come together, when everyone is stepping up to their place in the church, there often is a season of growth in the Word and in the Lord, and the Lord will be adding to the church. Now, it seemed for a moment, though, that the peace would be broken because in verse 12, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. I like the word fellow. Do we call people fellows anymore? I like that. I'm going to start calling this fellow. I like that. Roman law, I'm sorry, I just, you know, sometimes I see things and I forget that I'm up here teaching. Roman law allowed Jews the freedom to worship as long as they did not actively seek converts. They had kind of a, a, an arrangement, you know, okay, we, we don't really like the Jewish religion, but the Jews are hard to manage. And so as long as you manage your own affairs, don't proselyte anybody, we'll give you kind of a free reign within that sphere. And so the Jews are really accusing Paul 
of starting a new religion which would be contrary to Roman law. Galileo doesn't buy it. And so in verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there could be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Now, we can be sure Paul wanted to open his mouth not to defend himself, but to give Galileo a sermon. As we go on in the book of Acts, at one point, Paul will become arrested, and he will travel to Rome, and he'll have several tribunals or hearings, official and unofficial, and every time, rather than defend himself and seek a release, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to that official. And so Paul is wanting to open his mouth to give a testimony, uh, but Jesus had other plans. And he is going to show Paul that he'd gone before Paul to assure that nothing would harm him in Corinth. Galileo mistakenly dismisses the ruckus as an internal problem among the Jews. And it says here he drove them from the judgment seat. Now, the judgment seat would have been in the open public square where they heard cases. And drove them means that they wouldn't take no for an answer. And he finally had to get his bailiffs to actually drive them away. And that's why in verse 17 you read, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. And so the Jews are trying to get Galileo to hear this case, to get rid of Paul. He dismisses it. They won't leave. They're getting more and more agitated probably. So at some point, the bailiffs come, whoever keeps the peace there in front of the judgment seat, and they drive the Jews away. And whether it's an official or unofficial group of Greeks, they find Sosthenes, the current ruler of the synagogue, and they just decide to beat him up. You guys won't leave? You better leave or you're going to get this and you're going to get that. How about a nice knuckle sandwich? You know, I mean, it's that kind of a thing. It's, you know, it's not exactly the First Amendment, but it's effective. And so uh, that's how they kept order in this province. And then, in, uh, so in verse 17, they beat Sosthenes, and he took no notice of these things. Now, Sosthenes is mentioned later, and when he is, we see that by that time, he had become a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 mentions him as a believer. Now, again, I'm certain Paul was bummed that he didn't get to share Jesus with Galileo. But he must have enjoyed being a part of a much larger plan, and he could step back and see it. First of all, God kept Paul from a confrontation with Galileo that probably would have gotten him in trouble. If Paul opens his mouth and starts sharing Christ and saying to Galileo, hey, by the way, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, you need to be saved, that's what he needed to hear. But that's liable to put the church in a precarious position in Corinth. It's liable to get Paul arrested. It's liable to get him beat up. Uh, And so God had gone before him and decided that he wasn't going to allow him to talk. And then he can see later on how that he had been working in the life of Sosthenes to bring him to Christ. Everything that happens in our lives, the Lord uses eventually to bring us to him, those of us who come to know him. And so... You look back and you think, here's poor Crispus, becomes a Christian, can't be the ruler of the synagogue anymore, loses his position and status in their society. What's that all about? 
Well, it's all about Sosthenes becoming the ruler of the synagogue to later get beat up uh, by an anti-Semitic group of people to later get saved himself. Perhaps if Sosthenes is never the ruler of the synagogue, he never goes through that series of events that God uses in his life to bring him to saving faith. And so Paul is standing back and he's thinking, wow, Lord, I come to Corinth, I'm alone, I have no money, no resources, and I meet Aquila and Priscilla, and I'm able to work in their tent-making trade, and I get to hear about Rome, my heart's desire. Then Silas and Timothy come. Wow, man, those guys are... I can count on those guys. Those guys are solid guys, and they bring money, an offering from the church at Philippi, and more than even the money itself, just the thought that people would donate to my mission has me just stoked. And more than that, I'm happy for the Philippians because it's, it's treasure to their account in heaven, so I'm totally stoked. And then I get to pastor at Calvary Chapel at Justice's house. Justice opens up his house. You save just the right people. And then Crispus... You know, and this is a mind-blowing experience as Paul is able to step back and see it all unfold. Jesus has a big long-term plan in mind in our lives, through our lives, in our cities. We're a part of it. If we are doing our part as described in the opening eight verses, we can, in a sense, then just step back and enjoy our part, trusting that it will contribute to the overall plan. I mean, you can never be at the Crispus level and think, oh, what happened to poor Crispus? You have to see it through to all the way to Sosthenes, to both of those guys being Christians, to both of them walking with the Lord, to God doing a great work in that area. You want to be a part of reaching the many people Jesus has in the cities of Kings County? Of course we all do. Then learn from and identify with Aquila and Priscilla, Silas and Timothy, Justice, Crispus, and even Sosthenes. Let their simple but significant faith challenge you to embrace your place in the church, in your home, out in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things, simple yet significant. We appreciate the life and times of the Apostle Paul. The insights that you give us are just the right insights, Lord, to encourage us and strengthen us. I wanna pray especially for any of us, Lord, that are uh, subject to discouragement and discontent, any of us that are distressed this morning about anything, whether things are going well or poorly, Lord, that you would give us a fresh vision of you and new vision from you, and that we would be excited again about our love relationship with you and about uh, giving ourselves as living sacrifices. And for all of us, Lord, each one of us, I pray that we would have the courage today and in subsequent days to look at our home life and to make adjustments, to look at our business or workaday life and make adjustments, and to look at our church life and make adjustments. And that we would emulate, identify with, have the characteristics of these people and that we would see our city and cities and county being reached more and more. At the same time, may we enjoy what we're doing. Give us a long-range view of things, Lord. Give us a healthy discontent that keeps us serving you in new and fresh ways. Do all of that, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. Find somebody that you've never met before don't know who they are, if I asked you who that person's name was, you couldn't tell me, introduce yourself.
and uh, maybe make a new friend, or at least when I ask you what their name is, you can tell me. But uh, that's the secret thing. Uh, so meet somebody, spend some time in the cafe, and uh, just have some fellowship here on the grounds. We'll be uh, here together again on uh, Wednesday morning. The men meet for a time of fellowship for about 45 minutes from 6.30 to 7.15. We pray, and we're going through uh, Romans chapter 7 right now. Wednesday night, Ignite is a fast-paced, exciting service. Uh, if, even if you can't always come on Wednesday night, you should at least come once or once in a while to see what we're doing. This Wednesday is communion, uh, and so that'll be a uh, special fun thing. Uh, and then just be in prayer about the holidays, how that God might open doors of witness and testimony, that there would be people that would come to you and say, hey, what is this all about? What is the reason for this season? Who is this Jesus? What do you believe? And, and uh, whatever you already know about the Lord, it's enough to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. Let the Lord give you, you know, after that moment of, oh, gee, what do I say? Just let the Lord fill you with his confidence and tell people what you know. Uh, you know, the, there was that guy that one time he was cured by the Lord, healed by the Lord, and they kept hammering him, and he finally said, look, all I know is that I was blind, and now I can see. And Jesus did that for me. Uh, and so uh, let the Lord give you that boldness and that confidence. Uh, may he bless you and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.